Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. Excellent. All right. Hello, and welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. Whether you're an Arroya customer, Arroya curious, or just super passionate about growing and existing in this, in, in this industry, these weekly sessions are your chance to learn from the experts about crop steering, share cultivation tips and tricks, and network with other growers doing exciting things in this emerging industry. My name is Keisha. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. Just some quick house, uh, housekeeping before we get started. Uh, we welcome lively conversation, uh, but Arroya Office Hours is not the forum for discussing cannabis policy, home cultivation, or complaints about the industry, no matter how valid. In order to keep these sessions useful for our community, we thank our attendees in advance for adhering to the following best practices. Arroya Office Hours is not the time to ask, why isn't there an Arroya system for home growers? Are you hiring? Under the regulations in my state, am I, am I legally allowed to do insert activity here? Or what does Arroya cost? Although you are welcome to book a demo, and we can talk about that. I'll put that link in the chat in just a minute. Um, but Arroya Office Hours is the time to ask things like, what are some ways to go from manual growing to crop steering with hardware and software? Uh, Deleafing is the most challenging task our team has to deal with. Any tips on how to deal with this more efficiently? Uh, this is the data I'm seeing with my grow. Can you help me understand what it means? And what is the difference between water activity and moisture content? So those are some examples there. With that said, let's get started. We've got a great group today. We've got Jason, Philip, and Seth from our company here online. Uh, everybody who's in attendance, please do post your questions in the chat at any time. And if your question is selected, we'll ask you to unmute yourself and ask away. So Jason, Philip, and Seth, we're ready to ask our, answer our first question from Instagram. All right, let's do it. Yeah, great. Okay, Zadankness would like to know, can one crop steer without sensors? Uh, that's a great question. I think that uh, when we talk about crop steering, every crop is being steered. You know, whether it's being steered on purpose or not, or what direction it's going, uh, is where the tools come in to really monitor it. So you can apply those tactics. I mean, the, the irrigation strategies can be applied without sensors, um, but... That being said, you don't have a good uh, indicator of what is actually happening in that substrate. So if the steering that you're applying is working appropriately or how much longer you need to apply that type of steering. Mm. Now, when we talk about crop steering, like it's kind of like driving down the road without lines uh, or maybe without a speedometer. Uh, that's, so that's, that's definitely where those tools give you the ability to really refine and steer on purpose. Right. I mean, people, someone told me once that you're crop steering even, I mean, you're always crop steering at some point, even if you know it or don't know it. It's only when, when you have the tools, you can really dial it in and crop steer to your liking and you can really do what you intend to do. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It, you know, when we talk about crop steering, it's just applying specific irrigation strategies. So most of the time, you know, for the big durations we're talking about, either a, a vegetative or a, a generative steering capacity, right? And I, I was talking to our data scientists about this a little bit, and it's not like, it's not like you're either doing vegetative or generative, right? There right. is uh, a gray part. So if, if vegetative was um, completely black and generative was completely white, then there's definitely a lot of gray zone. If we're 50% right. white, 50% black, we're, right. we're running balanced or, or gray, right? And so the... Tools let you evaluate how much generative or how much vegetative uh, irrigation strategies that you are applying. Right, right, right. So not only applying a strategy, but then also seeing how that, if, if that strategy is actually being carried out. Because I can definitely see how someone can have like one irrigation schedule and then another irrigation schedule, one for veg, one for gen, not having sensors, believing that they are crop steering, but then actually don't know if they are, right? Because there is such a, huge span of where you can fall depending on the cultivar depending on a whole bunch of factors right that that's exactly right and um, when when we talk about harvest groups that's one of the most powerful things for continuous improvement of facility production and so sure you could be crop steering but you don't really know what direction happened for that cycle so if you do it next cycle you maybe try the exact same thing 
there could be slightly different results just depending on variation factors uh, that we've talked about in um, in some YouTube videos. Right, right. I mean, even like things like um, root zone development. I mean, stage of growth. That's going to also dif differentiate like or affect how you apply your crop steering techniques. And the only way to know how they respond is to measure. Um, I, I, I'd love to, to um, discuss that a bit more. When, okay, so now we establish, okay, you need sensors to crop steer or you need sensor to actually know if your crop steering techniques are working, you're doing what you intend to do. What sensors do you need? Like what's the minimum viable sensor suite to crop steer? Uh, Teros 12s. Substrate sensors, I mean, <laughs> substrate knowing, sensor, yeah. knowing the water contents. <laughs> really, what we're looking at is how much transpiration is is happening in that plant, right? And historically, a lot of growers go around and pick up the weight of the plants, right? Um, maybe if they're they're really trying to apply that, they'll have a, a scale that they take around and they can scale it. But that's not, you know, the scale and the weight also includes the biomass that the plant is adding. So it's a continuously changing weight that you're trying to evaluate right we want to know how much is available in that substrate and really the only way to do that is using some type of uh, electrical current throughout that media to evaluate percentage water content right right because it's not really about the weight of the water it's about how you stress the plant it's about the nutrient concentration in the root zone yeah and i mean our favorite way to work with modifying your your nutrient con uh, concentration at EC level is by modulating your irrigation schedule, uh, keeping track of how much runoff you are and the changes in that EC level when you do apply certain amounts of volume. Right. Seth, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think uh, you guys pretty much nailed it there. You know, it's, uh, let's say, crops trying to, drive, trying to crop steer without sensors would be like trying to drive a race car without a tachometer. Um, you can definitely do it, but you need to know exactly when to make certain decisions, uh, what kind of thresholds you're looking at, and then be able to fine tune, you know. I can give you an irrigation strategy that's pretty general, but for you to be able to actually be successful with it, you need to fine tune it to your exact media and facility conditions. And that's also where, you know, just the terrace is great, but all right, now we, we're able to apply stress, right? Next level, let's tune our environment so we can also do it from the other side too. Maybe help control those transpiration rates by controlling our humidity and then, you know, help control pest, disease, all that fun stuff by being able to fine tune our environment as well. Right, right. Yeah, that's super true because we have a lot of users, Seth, um, and you know this, we have a lot of users who are using Arroyo at one facility, then they expand to another facility. Oh, but that facility is on the other side of the country. The environments has changed, right? So now they try to apply that exact same technique and it doesn't work and they wonder why. Well, your environment has changed. Your building is different. You know, you, you might need to adjust certain things to get the same results. Exactly. Right. And it's it pretty much impossible to do that without 24-7 visibility. You know, a lot of growers didn't know, for instance, that their humidity was spiking for, let's say, two hours right after lights off before their DHU could handle it. Before all they had was like, well, we know it got really moist last night hmm. we know it hit 70 percent, but when you know now we can really tune our hvac to not only you know eliminate that threat but right. maybe be more efficient save some money too not no, chase our tail all the time definitely awesome i'm going to ask our next question from instagram but want to remind everybody in attendance today if you have any questions please do type them in the chat so we can get them answered. Okay, Lou Farms wants to know, can you explain how crucial airflow is for proper transpiration rates? Sure can. Uh, when we talk about airflow, it needs to be sufficient to uh, homogeneize uh, the entire environment, right? And this is super important when you're using sensor measurements because we don't want to necessarily have a, a microclimate around those leaves that are transpiring that we're not reading with the sensor equipment. So if we're making decisions um, based on the data being produced, a uh, homogeneized environment is really necessary to make those best decisions. And so when we talk about you know airflow across the leaf surface, this leaf surface is uh, it's porous, right? We have stomates that are expelling mm -hmm. water content. And so if we don't have enough proper airflow, the microclimate can develop around the leaves because we'll have a higher humidity based upon transpiration of the plant. Mm -hmm. Right. 
if that happens, if that microclimate is forming around the leaf, basically what that could do, correct me if I'm wrong, but that could affect whether or not the stomata is able to open appropriately? Sure. And we talk about uh, a couple things. One would be stomatal conductance. So we, we do sell and manufacture here a leaf parameter. Mm. Um, that leaf parameter is measuring the transpiration rate directly on the sample of a live leaf. So you can go, right. in, go into the grow rooms, clip that thing on, get an understanding of is it acting as efficiently as it should. And what do we use to control stomatal conductance? It's definitely VPD is one of the first and easiest things to um, adjust to achieve that optimal transpiration rate. Mm -hmm. So if our airflow is too low, we might have some stagnation in there. We might have a, a humidity around the plants that's higher than what it should be, and then that's going to reduce the transpiration rate out, out of those areas that are in the microclimate. Right, yeah, I've actually used one of those uh, leaf barometers. Those are really, really awesome because you can just click it on and then you can get a reading whether or not your stomata is open, um, whether or not the plant is really breathing, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool instrument. Yeah, and when, when we are using those, we definitely like to set a baseline, right? And so if, if we go in there and our, uh, our stomatal conductance is you know, slightly lower than what we'd expect is optimal, we kind of need to go through the room and say, hey, this is what the stomatal conductance is on average across multiple samples in right. the room, um, you know, top leaves, bottom leaves. And then if you are making environment adjustments, does that stomatal conductance go up? Does it drop? Does it not change? And, and so using a baseline comparison is absolutely the best way rather than just saying, hey, it's, it's low, let's make some changes. Well, it may not be low for that strain type or the capacity that you have to grow those plants. Okay, I, I've been to a few, uh, a few grows now, and when I go into the grow rooms, you have fans, obviously, at the top of the room in the ceilings to circulate the air, like, um, horizontally, if you will. But I've also seen a lot of grows that combine fans that does that, but also push the air down vertically. Is, that only, is, is the only reason for that to really get the circulation going to reduce the chances of microclimates in the room? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does help with efficiently as well. So uh, first you talked about half fans, uh, HAF, that's horizontal airflow. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, vertical airflow fans mm -hmm. as well. And there's lots of different brands of them. Um, you know, the vertical airflow is going to help push that hot air down. So, you know, if you are heating the room, uh, we might as well not put extra heat into the room if we can just push it down from the ceiling and get it down in, uh, across the environment. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. There's like with HPS lights, for instance. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And there's lots of great ways to you know, achieve optimal airflow. Um, I really like floor fans. I really like uh, HVAC socks or, or tubes. So that's just a mm -hmm. tube that connects to, it can be your heater, it can be um, vertical airflow, or excuse me, horizontal airflow fans, and that's diffusing the air, right? And so... Those are, that's nice because it can be you know, very close to the plants and it's not necessarily going to be blowing the leaves around and stuff. Uh, mm. We'll see them on the tables running down the center of that. Yeah. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite example of this is, is thinking about, let's take uh, Chicago, right? The Windy City. And it's got big, huge skyscrapers. When that wind hits the side of it, it's definitely um, going to be not as well as if the, if the air was coming up from the streets, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Great, thank you. All right, I got another question from Instagram here, but this isn't just for Instagram, it's for all of you who are on the call today. Please type in your questions in the chat so we can answer them for you. Greedy Goods is wondering, how to increase drybacks in a greenhouse with light assist in cocoa? Well, let's just hit that in kind of two parts. Um, we're, we're going to just not necessarily talk about cocoa specifically, but let's just talk about how to achieve those drybacks, um, you know, more drybacks, right? Um, basically, you're looking at DLI, especially in a greenhouse. So on a daily basis, we want to make sure that those plants are getting the same amount of energy. But, so when I, sorry, when I say DLI, that's daily lighting integral. And if we take our, our light intensity curve, which in a greenhouse can fluctuate. Uh, a lot of times, if you don't have supplemental, it's going to be kind of a bell curve. And we're going to total up all of the photons 
underneath that curve, right? So we're mm-hmm. saying DLI is a count of all the energy that those plants are getting through typically a 12-hour um, light cycle, right? And so if you do have variable conditions in your natural light, it's really nice to have an automated system that will um, turn on and off or modulate the, the, the intensity for mm-hmm. LEDs. So that's sure. one of the really nice things about the newer LED technology is a lot of those uh, can run variable, you know, say zero to 100% or uh, zero to 120% uh, if they've got a boost capacity. And so if we can hit that, I like, you know, a pretty reasonable baseline is say uh, 40 as a, a daily lighting integral. If everything else can kind of keep up, that's, you know, cannabis plants are, they're high intensity. They can handle a lot of light and they can mm. produce biomass very quickly. And so, you know, if you get up into that 40, all other conditions um, good, then, you know, if you hit a cloudy day, maybe your lights are on all the time to achieve that, uh, that 40 DLI. Next day, super sunny day, and maybe you won't have to use those supplemental lights much at all. Um, up here in the Northwest, we have very long days in the summer and, um, well, not very long, not like Alaska, but pretty long days in the summertime and a little bit mm. shorter days uh, in the wintertime. And so obviously in the wintertime, we are going to have to supplement at both ends of uh, that 12 hour flower cycle, regardless of the, the sun input. Mm. Now in the summertime, uh, we've got a fairly wide window of that light, the apex of the sun. I mean, the angle that it's hitting the greenhouse is already significant by the time that we're ready to open up those blackouts. Right. So it's really about applying enough light and it can take a lot of light for the plant to transpire to drive that dry back. Basically have the plant suck up the water, suck up the nutrition. Yep, and so what causes dry back? I mean, there's two main factors of of water loss in a substrate and Mm -hmm. that's transpiration and evaporation, right? And so throughout the day, uh, the plant is pulling water from the substrate and there is some amount of evaporation yep. that water is going to. So in order to get those drybacks, uh, to increase those drybacks, we need the plant to increase its transpiration rate. Yep. But just be careful if you up your light because you can you can rock like a thousand PPFD, 1200, you can really get up there, especially with LEDs. But if you do, you really need to adjust your other parameters as well. More light is the quickest quickest way to get more yields but if you're not compensating with enough nutrition, with enough uh, humidity, whatever, adjusting your parameters, um, yeah, you just have to do that not to hurt your plants. Seth, we we missing anything in there? Uh, the only thing I was going to add on that one, guys, is I think uh, humidity and BPD mm. can be really tough to control in a greenhouse. You know, yep. years are growing in the Northwest. Like at night around here, we're over ninety percent humidity. And that effectively is zero VPD all the time. So if you have to bring in outside air at all, you have to figure out a way to treat that and decide, okay, overnight we've got to figure out how to get our humidity down. Mm. You know, it obviously always tries to come up when we turn the lights off. We can't pull any from outside. That's not an option at this point. So do we need to supplement CO2 and recycle the air that we have in the greenhouse? Um, Trying to figure out how to keep that humidity in the sweet spot so we're still getting transpiration. If our humidity is too high, we won't actually be able to transpire that much despite applying all of that light. Right. And you as know, a result, the, the dryback won't be the design. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And that's just like with the micro, you know, the wind problem with leaves. Uh, you know, if you don't have enough airflow, that microclimate around the leaves will not let the plants transpire despite everything else seeming optimal. Mm. So that's that's kind of my, my two cents there. And that's, I, I think, a challenge for all greenhouse growers everywhere, too dry or too wet eternal struggle and I, I did want to um make sure we wrap up on the second part of that question which was the media um mentioned in the question was uh, cocoa mm. as far as what we were just talking about i mean that's plant biology that's going to really happen in any media but if you're trying to get good drybacks and have uh, the most steerable control possible using the appropriate sized media is the absolute first decision to yeah. uh to get those drybacks yeah hundred percent. I've seen growth that are rocking like two gallon, four gallon. I mean, really, really, really big substrate. And then they're wondering why am I not drying back more than 10% or whatever? And it's because it's accumulating water. Your root zone is not that big. You're not going to be able to use that much water and then everything just accumulates and you're not going to get that stress that you're after. 
Yeah. I mean, if you're growing really big plants, two gallons, reasonable. Mm. So let's keep that in mind. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So uh, Trap Canna submitted our next question here. When plants start to transition in flower from generative to vegetative, do you see pH drops? You can. Uh, pH is one of the critical manual readings to be taken um, on your daily runoff. You want to keep an eye on, uh, you know, say if we're feeding at 5, 6, if that pH is going way up into the, you know, 6, 3, 6, 4 plus range, we definitely know that there's a nutrient imbalance in what that plant is eating. So mm -hmm. pH is potential hydrogen, which is talking about um, the negatively charged ions in solution. And so when we talk about how a plant is eating, it's uptaking cations and anions from that nutrients and building sugars out of it, right? So if it is pulling an incorrect amount of one type of nutrient, then we can see that pH go up or mm -hmm. down based on the imbalance that's in the runoff. Great. Okay. Our next question from Instagram. And please, anyone who's online has questions, don't forget to type them in the chat. Uh, Extractiver would like to know, what is the best organic boost there is in flour except for tea? Uh, Seth, you want to get this one started off for organics? <laughs> um, you know, that's a tough one. There's about a million opinions out there on that. Personally, I think uh, if you're going full organic, you're probably in a bed situation with a well-developed soil. Um, mm -hmm. If you're just running a soilless mix, you might want to evaluate how organic your whole process actually is, whether or not you're adding salts at any point. Um, in a true organic setting, you're going to have components that break down at the appropriate time. So mixing up the right amounts of different kinds of compost, bone meal, things like that, and timing it so that you're putting it in knowing that that stuff's going to become plant available in exactly one and a half months. So I'm not going to go ahead and say that there is a perfect organic bloom booster out there. Uh, probably one of the key things is developing that living soil and then feeding it properly. So when you're using those compost teas, you're feeding all of those microorganisms you've built up and grown in your soil. And if they aren't healthy going into that, mm. you're not going to get the effect you want out of whatever bloom booster you put on there. Okay. So just a lot of, you need, you need to, you need to have a good understanding of what you're doing before even adding bloom boosters. Yeah. Yep. You need to have a healthy soil biology. Mm. And just to kind of mention, you know, some of the difference, um, there's a, a pretty great portion of our clients that are running straight synthetic nutrients, um, synthetic nutrients, you know, that's, so that's being salts, you know, a, a plus B mixtures. Those, um, those nutrients are immediately readily available to the plants. Uh, and that's why we do see a lot of, you know, indoor, um, facilities, high light intensities going to straight synthetic route. And like Seth was saying, good soil amendments take good planning. It takes a healthy soil biology and it takes time for those amendments to break down into plant soluble nutrition. Right, right. I, I've never attempted to grow in, in, in soil, but I know that for non, non soil substrate, I mean, the one, I mean, there's many reasons why, we, why you would want to do that. But one reason is because you're taking those, um, some of those unknowns out, right? You're using uh, synthetic. Uh, nutrients using non-soil media and you can kind of know what to expect from time to time because it is a homogeneous substrate you know what you're putting your plants in right yeah well we gotta get you on some tomatoes here this summer i know i know scott scott who usually is here i think he just started growing tomatoes you know among other things oh yeah i had, I had some tomatoes and cocoa last summer okay eggs out in the garden why not I'm pretty yeah. sure Scott is uh, doing uh, in, uh, I think he's doing his tomatoes in Rockpool. Nice. Yeah, pretty sure. In the garage. In the garage. And <laughs> they're leafy and they have trichomes. Yeah. No, well, no, no, no. He, 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 he has tomatoes as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. He had to cover it up somehow. Okay. <laughs> Great. Our next question from, comes from Mark MS 90 what is an acceptable humidity, humidity fluctuation range caused by HVAC? 
Mm. I guess the word there to analyze is acceptable. Um, you always want to program your HVAC systems to have the smallest swings as possible, uh, right? And I mean, we've seen, God, I'm working with a client down in LA and their data readings are so flat that I, I just really want to go give a congratulations to the people that designed that HVAC system because it's, it's incredible. You know, talking about plus minus 3% relative humidity to their set point, which is, is incredible. Um, now, when we're talking about a greenhouse and Seth mentioned this earlier, sometimes you're doing everything you can to stay within a maybe plus minus 20% relative humidity. I mean, that, mm. that might be good if it's um, drastic conditions outside and you don't necessarily have closed loop system with capacity to, to deal with it. So um, obviously when I was, when I was growing, programming a greenhouse takes a, a lot of, considerations into aspect because we have to modulate heat and relative humidity and when we have one type of equipment act uh, upon the conditions of the greenhouse it can definitely push the other one around right so uh, summertime if it's really hot out we need to get cooler air in we need to get airflow through that greenhouse maybe we got a pad pump going on um if it's super dry out, we may not be able to keep the humidity up in that room because we're moving so much air just to keep the plants cool. Mm. Um, and, and even more of a challenge, if it's hot and humid out, we're trying to use our pad pump to uh, use evaporative cooling into the greenhouse, but we're already got too much humidity and that pad pump is increasing the humidity as well. So uh, greenhouses are a fun challenge to, to deal with that. And uh, that was a really vague answer to that question but the <laughs> acceptable is the best that your equipment can deal with um and, and what you're willing to to mitigate the um, productivity results because of of those swings yeah anything seth yeah. um i i guess i'll just try to put a hard number on there if you've got a 10 percent swing in between your set points mm. Um, that's going to mess with your VPD enough to affect transpirational rates throughout the day. You're kind of doing this with your air potential, your pressure potential on the plant. So it's not going to be growing quite as evenly. And that's just back to what Jason said, the, the minimum fluctuation you can have in humidity, the better. And same goes with overnight. You don't want it to go up and you don't want it to go down super massively overnight. Right. It just goes back to those. I mean, it's just one of those nine cardinal parameters, right? When you're trying to crop steer, mm -hmm. it's just one of those things. Anything you do, it, it is going to affect to some, to some degree. Exactly. If, even small amounts, you know, just a few degrees in temperature has a surprising effect on relative humidity and VPD. Hmm. Our next question comes from Kevin198918918. When generative steering, you stop giving water when you have drain. How much drain percentage do you want? So uh, really what I like to deal with on drain is what do I need my EC to do, right? So if we are, are trying to stack it through weeks, you know, say it's week two and we're trying to stack our EC, we'll shoot for uh, less drain. Um, and if we are trying to pull that EC back down, uh, maybe we're going to be going into some vegetative bulking the, the week after this one. We would want just slightly more drain so that we can start pulling that EC uh, down a little bit. So what my best recommendation is, is if we need EC to go up, have less uh, runoff volume. If we need EC to go down, have more runoff volume. Right. So you you have to explain to me. So basically what you're doing is when you try to not have any dry, uh, any runoff at all, basically what's happening is that your nutrients are accumulating, right, in the substrate. And and the opposite is if you if you do want some dry uh, or some runoff, you, 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 you're, not, you're not flushing it, but you're basically flushing out nutrients with your runoff, right? And hence the EC will go down and the stress on the plant will go down. So there, there's one caveat here, and that is uh, this behavior is only happening if you're feeding um at least as much or more than your plant is eating so if your plant mm -hmm. is actually 
eating more, you know, your, your substrate EC is lower than your feed EC. This, I mean, this isn't going to be happening like, like we're talking about. Right. So right. if we're feeding at say three decisiemens per meter and our plant is eating so much nutrition that our EC is at two by the time that we irrigate the next day, those new nutrients are going to pull the substrate yeah. up. So, you know, what I'm talking about is only if your substrate ECs are higher than your feed EC, which is usually a, a good way to run. Most of the more successful grows that we see are, are definitely um, keeping substrate EC above feed EC. And so, uh, yeah, when you irrigate, that uh, nutrition or that uh, EC level is going to pull the substrate EC down, right? So if uh, our EC is at, say, 6 in the substrate when we irrigate with 3.0, um, the more we irrigate with 3.0, the more the nutrients in the substrate are going to be diluted. Hmm. It just goes back to to what we talked about in the beginning. Like you, you, you can have a recipe and you can say, hey, I want this much dry, uh, runoff. But if you don't measure what's happening in the substrate, you, you're just not going to know, you know. And you can. You can use runoff readings to calculate that EC as well. But it, the, right, you know, the but runoff you reading is... You do have to measure it, but that runoff reading is going to be modified by how that how that uh, water flowed through the substrate right. and other factors. So it's definitely really good practice to have your substrate EC in check. Mm. Yep. Cool. Absolutely, Jason. I think you nailed it. My, my one comment would be in the perfect world, you'd have zero runoff, and you could really control your fertigation system right, you know, that closely for every plant. How possible is that um, to achieve that? I think that's possible by not pushing your EC, but you might be, you know, it, it would take a lot, a lot of time of really dialing in one cultivar in a very repeatable facility. Okay, so even room. if you really manage it for cultivar A and you you, do, you, you run that yep. 10 times and in, you nail it down, as yep. soon as you in switch. Just as Jason said, if you're, if you're not building EC and you're perfectly giving your plants exactly what they need, you wouldn't have runoff. And that, so that's the ideal perfect world, right? <laughs> in reality, uh, we watch that graph and go, okay, we need to we need to rinse a little salt out of there. It's building a little quick today. You know, gotcha. that's, that's what we do. So the answer to the question is no runoff if you can profit here. If, if you were, if you, yeah, if you just had the ultimate green thumb. If you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that, that's the goal. Yeah. And, and that minimizes waste too, because I mean, when you're thinking about it, if you're... Uh, pushing a 3.0 EC or 3.5 EC feed and you're running off 10 or 20%, that's a fair amount of solution that you're paying to mix up. Yeah, no, de I mean, definitely. It's, it's, it's waste, it's, it's, uh, it's costly. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, some of those uh, runoff um, um, uh, solutions essentially are, are not super friendly either uh, necessarily to the environment. I don't know if there's, yep. uh, I don't know how many states are regulating it, but it's definitely something that's been regulated. Like in Holland, for instance, runoff is is extremely costly uh, because of those reasons. Mm -hmm. you know, here, in, here in Washington, you've got to have either some bioremediation or some yeah. other filtering on site. It can't leave your property mm -hmm. at a higher PPM than your water comes in. So you're either doing that yourself or paying, you know, a water treatment facility locally. Right, right. You guys don't like swimming in algae blooms? <laughs> I mean, sure. Uh, I love remediation ponds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, totally. Okay. One of our attendees, Iron Armor, typed in a question. Uh, you want to go ahead and unmute yourself? Okay. I'm for 14. All right, I'll go ahead and read it here. So, uh, he's. Uh, I'm currently budging for 14 to 21 days, depending on the strain, in delta eight cubes, which are four by four by two and a half. Once we flip them, we put them onto slabs. During the transition, we try our best to match up the DLI, VPD, temp, RH from room to room. But honestly, the first few weeks, we struggle to hit dryback around 20% plus and kind of have a rough transition for the most part. I know in a previous episode, it was recommended to go to a smaller medium. Any other tips to help the flip transition go a little smoother? So, Thank you, Iron Armor, for submitting your question. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great to see the detail on how you're doing it. I think that you're actually on a really good route right now. So uh, Delta 8 cubes are one of my favorite media sizes for vegging. Uh, slabs are definitely one of my favorite medias for flowering. And matching your DLI conditions, very important. So your light intensity is going to be going up when 
we go from an 18 hour window to a 12 hour window in order to get the same amount of energy to the plant that intensity needs to go up. So I really like what you're doing uh, with those. Um, I think some of the things that you might be able to do is uh, just kind of make sure that uh, your substrate isn't oversaturating when those roots are trying to get into the slab. So when those, those roots have a little too much access to water, they can get lazy on you and they won't necessarily begin engulfing the entire slab and they won't be growing as fast as possible. So through that transition period, uh, some of the things that we'll recommend is um, doing, you know, a few small shots in a, in a, for a few days. So say, you know, three, four or five small shots, kind of like a vegetative style. And what that's doing is, well, keeping your plant alive because the roots are all pulling water from just that delta eight cube on top before that they've tapped into the reservoir in the slabs. So for those three days, you know, we could do some what one person would call rooting in. And uh, that's encouraging those roots to, to seek out into the slab and, and stay, uh, keep that plant alive. And then for, you know, maybe three more days after that, you can actually really reduce the amount of feed that you're putting in there, the amount of irrigation volume, fertigation volume. And what that's going to do is, is help put your slab at a good water content to begin those uh, initial generative shots. Um, and mm. so really what it is is keeping an eye on how much water content is decreasing in those slabs. And when you hit, you know, say 45%, then start your generative irrigations. And that'll really help get a, a healthy jump start on the drybacks that you're trying to achieve early in power. Gotcha. So you really need to take it, uh, pay attention to that rooting in, um, if you will, stage and have. I mean, the transition essentially is inevitable, but you can make it smoother by by applying certain techniques. Exactly. Seth, any thoughts? Yeah, I think what, yeah, I think what's important to realize there is it seems kind of odd to throw on like those little one percent shots, even though you're already hydrated. But what that's doing is we're getting, you know, probably about 1% runoff when we do that at saturation. And that's pushing water and oxygen down into the root zone. And that's a big thing that roots need. I mean, you know, if you look at a lot of the original science on rock wool, you know, they're pushed for like a 50% dry back before you gave any water. And the idea was that you're pulling air into the media and the roots are chasing that water down into the pores. Mm. So we can emulate that by adding that 1% shot and encouraging water and oxygen movement down into the media. When the roots are stagnant, they won't have explosive growth if they don't have access to oxygen, which is what happens if you wait a long, long time to add any water to the system. Cool. Great. All right. Our next question. Oh, yeah. No worries, Iron Armor. Thank you so much for submitting your question. If you have any others, please. And everyone on, in attendance, please do type them in the chat. Uh, cap, eight, cap ain't capping some of these handles. <laughs> Wants to know, what's the VPD levels for every week of flower? I have a feeling he's asking for like a a benchmark target. Let's see. Oh, go, for, go for it, Seth. Uh, I've got it pulled up, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right here. All righty, week one, we're looking at 0. 0.9 to 1.2. Week two, 1.0 to 1.2. Week three, 1.0 to 1.2 as well. Week four, 1.1 to 1.3. Week five, 1.1 to 1.4. Week six, 1.1 to 1.4. Week seven, 1.2 to 1.4. And week eight, 1.3 to 1.5. And that's our crop steering guide, right? Yep. That's right off the list there. And, it, and a good way to think about that is, you know, getting into later flower if you're not, like for years, I'm a lot more familiar with, our, uh, you know, relative humidity than VPD. So I love looking at those numbers and then thinking about, okay, in late flower, when I go over 60% humidity anytime in those last three weeks, you're asking for botrytis potentially if you've got it in your environment. So as the buds get bigger, we want things to get drier. Uh, there's more plant mass to pull that water up from the root zone into. So we need greater pressure potential in the air to accomplish that. So we want that trend of drying it out. And this is typically where a lot of people struggle because you're adding so much biomass early on <laughs> and in the middle of growth that suddenly you just have a massive amount of matter to deal with that's all transpiring. And, so. and VP is really one of the best ways 
you know, one of the best indicators on how to manage your environment because you can really say, well, this is the temperature that I want to operate at and then match it with your humidity. Or if you have uh, equipment constraints, sometimes you say we can only achieve this humidity, so this is the temperature that we need to run to get the best growth out of it. And as you get later into flower, uh, a lot of people successfully do night-day differentials. And so as you're changing that temperature, you really want to make sure that your relative humidity is in check so that your VPD uh, doesn't get too wacky in them. And that's that's kind of what Seth's talking about, uh, is making sure that you're at that right point in your VPD so that you're not more susceptible to botrytis, molds, mildews, but you're also optimizing the plant growth. And sometimes that difference can be just a few degrees at different points in the day is why, you know, it's just important to have that 24-7 visibility. Hmm. Wonderful. Okay. El Laxero Oficial is wondering about a good healthy ratio of cow mag for, flush, for flushing plants per gram. What's on that? Uh, it's going to really depend what else you're feeding the plant. Uh, yeah, exactly. Different nutrient lines have different levels and different types of calcium already added. You don't necessarily want to overdo it. However, you know, if they're talking about flushing, we typically don't recommend a flush. Um, a lot of times you can use CalMag in a flush just, you know, to avoid total osmotic shock to the plant by having some EC in that water. But typically we recommend backing off and not going for a full flush. And the reason for that is when you go with straight water, you're introducing such a different osmotic environment into the root zone that you can actually like rupture cells on the surface of your roots. It's a huge shock to the plant. They get hungry when you go straight flush. And, <laughs> and some of that kind of comes down to what uh, the cation exchange capacity in your media is, right? And so when this, when the, you know, a flushing and RO tactic is applied to rock wool, Rockwell's got a very low cation exchange capacity, which means that it's not hanging on to the ions in solution by the molecular structure of that um, substrate. So it's going to be very reactive to a change in the nutrient concentration. So if you go to you know an RO feed in Rockwell, you're going to see that EC just bottom out very quickly you know within a day that stuff's going to be way way lower than what the plant needs to even stay alive and if that's happening if this plant is starting you're going to see necrotic um, necrosis death mm. inside of those bud sites as um, that plant's going so rather than you know maybe having a really clean finish you're actually in inducing probably some amount of plant waste because of it and anytime that there is necrosis going on those dead um, plant cells are a very susceptible site for um, for disease hmm. great okay next question from proline drybacks they want to know when is the best time to lollipop To lollipop, so a little bit of like early deleafing. I think that's what they're talking about. Um, it's going to be genetic based, and at flip, go hard, go early. If you're if you find yourself pulling bud sites off later, you know, especially after stretch, you're pretty much just throwing all the energy the plant put into that bud, and you know, you're throwing that away. Mm. If you can minimize those lower sites that you know aren't going to produce early on, that's better. So usually day one, and then do a, uh, a cleanup later on in late stretch. And there, there's, a, there's a bunch of different D-leaf strategies out there, but when it comes to lollipopping, that's what I say. Because if you do it too late also, you're not giving the plant enough time to regenerate oh, and yeah. produce more sites in the spot you want. So you want to hit it early. And when you lollipop, generally, that's you're talking about two to three nodes. So if you're doing that on day one of flip, then you've got the rest of stretch to develop bud sites in the area up in the canopy that you want. Great. Excellent. Uh, just a reminder for the folks who are on with us, we've got about 
10 more minutes in the program today, so please do submit your questions so we can address them live. Um, River City Growers wants to know, what NPK ratio do you recommend and what food program is your preference? And their second question on that is, what is the target VPD? So I think we did uh, answer the target VPD earlier, just week by week. So um, just refer to this video earlier on to, to go over that question, get it answered. And uh, what is our favorite NPK ratios? There's a lot of good nutrient brands out there that have a fairly well-balanced um, NPK ratio. Mm. Um, so that's the composition of those nutrients. And if, you know, if you have a preference line that you've been going with um, and you start implementing Arroyo, definitely, you know, don't change too many variables at once. Um, if you know people that are being very successful doing similar stuff to you, as you are and they've got a preferred line, go with that. Um, I mean, there's, you know, probably a good two handfuls of, of quality nutrient brands out there. Uh, a lot of those nutrients actually come from the same source and it just kind of depends on, on how they get packaged and, and mixed. Hmm. But basically don't, don't change up what you're doing. Even if you, if you're new to crop steering, when you to sensors, don't change up too much immediately. Correct. Yeah. You, I mean, you want to, you want to set a baseline and, right. um, and you want to and you want to see what what affects what right like with any change you want to change a little bit and see how that changes things and um and, and go from there. Seth, you got any input on this? Um, you know, yeah, I'd say the same thing. There's no there's no blanket answer to that. You know, almost every commercial product out there, there's a different NPK ratio, and guess what? They all work to some extent. Um, they're still on the market. And a big thing to remember is you're targeting you know a certain amount in PPMs of different types of elements, right? And the number on that bottle or on that bag of salt is highly dependent on how you mix it. So if you dilute it a lot, it's no longer the same numbers. It's a good way to put it. So you need to figure out how to do math and target, you know, the actual amount of different elements you want if you're going to fine tune any of those values. Hmm. And then remember that it's probably good to generally start with a little lower value across the board and then work up your comfort mixing stronger salts and stuff like that. Awesome. That's a perfect segue into our next question, which comes from just here for the memes, 2222. Do you recommend keeping the sensor in the same plant and same holes the entire run? Yes, we, we absolutely do. Um, and so I guess this kind of comes down to, to sensor density as well. Is mm. You want to have enough sensors that you can appropriately ap attribute the population and follow the root zone patterns in one substrate throughout the whole life cycle of that plant or as much of that life cycle as you can capture in that media and uh the, you know the second part of that was in the same holes yes absolutely you know, every time that the sensor if it if it gets installed in fresh media it's going to have good conductivity with that substrate and those pins are going to be um, touching in all the spots of that media if it gets reinserted into uh, an, an old sensor site then mm. there's a good likeliness that you'll have air pockets or water pockets so some cavitation in that media causing readings that don't really represent what's going on throughout that whole substrate so always use installation template at the appropriate height for your media always install into um, a homogeneous and fresh part of your substrate and uh, keep in mind you know any inconsistencies if you are running say um, you know, a mixed media type. Um, mm. Right. I actually had a, a customer calling in not too long ago asking for, um, he was using Arroya and he did do that, but he also had spot measurements and he was inserting the sensor every day at the exact same location. And he saw differences in his readings, um, differences that he couldn't quite explain. And, and uh, the answer was just that, but he was just using the same holes in the substrate and those were not no longer representative. It was air pockets around the sensor, and he couldn't get a good reading. Yep, and do keep in mind, uh, Charles 12 has a volume of influence uh, one liter. So mm -hmm. that volume of influence is basically the amount of substrate around the sensor prongs that it is pulling uh, that current reading from. So even if uh, you know you are 
installing it into some fresh media, make sure it's well outside of any uh, any hole or existing holes in the substrate. Um, you know, and another thing to kind of think about, which probably could be good to talk about here, if you are in round pots and you're trying to install that sensor um, horizontally, then a lot of times you won't be able to get that thing flushed and mm. your prongs will have a little bit of air around the edges. Uh, almost every time I see that, you're going to have more erratic readings in your EC. Usually they're going to be much higher. Water contents can be lower because it's actually reading that air around the prongs. So if you are in round hard pots, um, you know, a good route to go is cut a rectangular slot out of that hard pot and get that sensor all the way flushed into the media so that those prongs are not exposed. Right. Same thing there, though. If you do do that or, you know, you drill in or whatever you do, don't push into the substrate so, so that you deform it before you get a chance to install your sensor in that fresh media. Sure, yeah. So if you're in a, a square hard pot, for example, uh, a great great method of doing that is take the sensor. Those prongs are very sharp, mm -hmm. so you can just kind of just lightly tap it on the side, and that'll give you three marks. Um, I think we use a 316th drill bit is a great way. Uh, try not to push that drill bit too far into the media. So, you know, check it up as far into the drill as you can and just drill through only the plastic. That way those sensors go in and they have full contact with the substrate in that square hard pot. Excellent. Iron Armor submitted another question. Let's go ahead and get you unmuted so you can ask. Hey guys, how's it going? Um, what are you guys' thoughts on like the different type of slabs? Like as far as like just the regular Rodan slabs, the Pargo and the Red Rock. Like uh, would like going to like Pargo slabs help me hit the twenty percent dry back faster? Yeah. So um, as far as uh, I mean, different slab brands probably there's differences in how they manufacture. I know the most um, of those on how the Rodan slabs are built. So you're Quick drain slabs, they actually are blowing the fibers uh, vertically, and that's why they call it the quick drain. And so when we think about water flow, it's going to be uh, faster if it's perpendicular to the fiber strands. So that's their quick drain. Um, I think their traditional uh, slabs, they're blown horizontally, right? So that water content's not going to flow through quite as quickly. And then I, I think they do have a, a next gen where supposedly they're blowing those fibers um, across. To, to try and get the, the best of both worlds, that oxygen pulling capacity of the vertical and uh, and that water retention of the horizontal. Hmm. Seth, any thoughts? Um, you know, go, going to like the quick grain will help with that, but typically trying to get your VPD dialed and your light up is going to be, uh, you know, a bigger factor in getting those, those dry backs and then, you know, to dialing your plant size. I was just about to say, because I've met customers who tried both um, Red Rock and uh, Groden Slabs, and they've seen minimal differences. I mean, pretty much, you know, yeah, it's rock wool. It uh, behaves about the same, but other factors affect it more than, than the actual slab material. But a, reputa a reputable brand is what I would choose either way. Yep. In my experience, that Pargro just drains off much easier. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, KJ. No, no worries. <laughs> I just say it, it just usually doesn't hit quite as high of a water content and uh, doesn't hold it as long. And, you know, pursuant to what Jason said, that's just because it's running off super easy. Hmm. You know, that being said, though, it's also, you know, you can get the Pargro cloning cubes. They're great, too, just because they do pull water and air through quicker. Nice. Iron Armor, awesome. Thank you so much for submitting that question. Uh, we have a few more here, and it's not too late for anybody who's on the call to submit their questions on the chat. At Air Stafford wants to know, can feminized seeds hermaphrodite easily within the first stage of flower, weeks one through three? Seth, you're probably our resident seed expert here. Um, <laughs> most everything I've grown yeah, is close. Yeah, I mean, so it, every feminized seed comes from, from a hermaphrodite plant, whether that was purposefully induced or not. So you're already dealing with a plant that has a tendency to uh, throw stamens. So it's something to think about when exactly that happens gonna be highly dependent on, you know, that individual plant and the environments in, in the environment that it's in. So you've already selected genetically for that to happen potentially, and then it's okay, how, how easily is it for that plant 
or how easy does that plan Herm out? How much stress does it take? Mm. So, and in, in my experience, some of them, it's, it's going to happen. It's not about if it's about when, you know, it's right, right now with the state of the industry, it's very tough to get good, um, good information on your genetic lineages and any kind of guarantees on stuff like that. So mm. that's my two cents on that one. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, thank you, Seth. Okay. Gashouse Gardens is wondering how to maximize stretch on a plant that doesn't naturally stretch much. What can I do? Oh, to maximize stretch. Usually we're seeing things the other way. Like, uh, you know, if we're trying to maximize stretch, I think about strains like MAC1. I think I've talked in previous videos. It's a fairly stubby, stocky type of plant that mm. can be run generative for very much of its life cycle. So if we are trying to, to get that plant to stretch out, then uh, definitely be pushing a little bit more vegetative type of, uh, type of strategies. Uh, you may need to run the veg cycle longer. Um, you know, that 18.6, so you have a lower level or lower intensity of light, which also uh, encourages plants for that vegetative infrastructure, which is that stretching that we're talking about, right? So mm -hmm. um, those would be the two strategies that come right to the top of my mind. Yeah, I mean, if we're uh, trying to, are we trying to encourage stretch, I guess, to discourage mold, or are we just chasing bigger yields overall? If it's just bigger plants, like Jason said, we can try to stretch them in veg. You can also consider just vegging them bigger. You know, if you've got a plant that takes longer to grow in veg, it's stocky, even though you're pushing it vegetatively, it won't grow. Go ahead, grow it up a lot taller than the other plants you flip, you know. If you keep flipping a plant at, you know, 20 inches tall and it over, only ever hits 33 inches, well, grow it up to 33 and flip it. You know, that's, that, to me, that's, that's kind of the easiest solution there. Yeah. Thank you, guys. And then, you know, I think we have time for one more in this last few minutes here. Pat Goat wants to know, what weeks of veg flower cycle should shot sizes change in size for two-gallon cocoa? Let me read that one more time. What weeks of veg or flower cycle should shot sizes change in size for two-gallon cocoa? Uh, there's going to be a, a lot of stuff coming into play. For, for that one, uh, I mean, right off the bat, we like to kind of follow our crop steering guidelines for a baseline of number of shots, um, shot duration, volume per se, and then keeping in mind the plant transpiration to modulate those specifics. So, uh, you know, I'd recommend kind of looking at a, a crop steering chart that, that outlines what, what he's shooting for. Um, as you know, as far as the specifics, when we're running a little bit more vegetative, having a, an irrigation window, and when I talk about irrigation window, that's time from first shot to last shot, not the duration of each shot. But so for vegetative, uh, a lot of times we're talking about six, 10, maybe 12 irrigation events mm -hmm. uh, in anywhere between, say, six and 10 hours uh, for that irrigation window. Um, and then for generative, you know, we're talking about really a short irrigation window. So maybe only one or two hours from first to, to last irrigation. And, you know, even if, if you are running generative, um, trying to get that P1 irrigation period uh, up to field capacity fairly quickly, we always do recommend breaking that down into multiple irrigation events. Uh, what those multiple irrigation events are doing is helping the capillary action of the substrate. So capillary action, thinking about, like, um, how does a sponge work, right? You know, it's the water transfer through the media material itself. And so having multiple irrigations, even if you are trying to get up to saturation um, or field capacity very quickly, does help that substrate stay homogeneous and, and consistent water content. And, um, kind of the, the visual that I've used um, in the past uh, is thinking about, a, you know, a dry sponge, right? Or mm. maybe even just a, a mildly wet sponge. If we have it under the sink and we are letting the irrigation just drip onto that sponge, it's going to get fully wet before we see water start running off of it, dripping off of it. Now, if we turn up the faucet, um, say, on this same starting wetness of sponge, 
uh, a lot of times uh, those corners are still going to be dry by when the water starts pushing off, pushing down to the bottom of the sponge. It's a great analogy. Wonderful. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jason, Philip, and Seth. What a great conversation. Thanks to all of you who joined us today and everyone who's watching. Um, you know, Arroyo office hours is your time. Uh, any questions you have about Arroyo, how it can be used to improve your cultivation process, uh, production process, any topics you'd like covered in the future, feel free to let us know in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo.metergroup.com or send us a DM on Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's conversation. It will also be live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Feel free to like and subscribe while you're there. And if you find these conversations useful, please feel, to free, feel free to forward to anybody else who you think might benefit. Uh, thank you all so much again, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, everyone. Right. Thank you. Alrighty. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.